0: Who is number one?
1: You are
2: number six.
1: I am not a number.
0: I am a free man. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, and I just want to teach the whole world to sing using my innovative teaching methods. My co-host is Guy, who for some reason doesn't want the whole world singing. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So what do you have against universal singing
0: education? Well, nothing if I get to pick all the songs. (laughs) Okay.
1: Okay. And we have a first for our podcast. We're excited to have a surprise guest today, Andrew Heaton, podcaster, author, and raconteur. Hello, Mr. Heaton. Hello, good to be here. So, what's your relationship to the prisoner? My
2: old roommate, Evil Jim, who (laughs) I lived with in Washington, D.C., shortly before leaving for New York, and I watched that when I started coming back to visit. So, I would come back, and we would... Drink scotch or beer and just watch The Prisoner. And I, I saw it sort of one episode at a time, maybe quarterly, but <laughs> but enjoyed, immediately enjoyed the very 1970s vibe, or I guess 1960s vibe mm-hmm. of the prison, late 60s vibe of The Prisoner. And, and it, it enjoyed the kind of mysterious combo of early 1970s camp combined with like 1940s nostalgia combined with basically lost. <laughs> So right. I, I got a kick out of it. and Watched it that way and for a while. Would like whenever I saw Jim, I'd put my, I, I do my thumb on my ring finger and you know, be seeing you, and like we, we sort of do that. when We walk past each other. So that, yeah, that's my relationship with it.
1: Cool. Mm. Well, I'll just give you a little background on what we're doing here. This is one of the many things that I get obsessed about. So I've been obsessed about The Prisoner for decades and Guy has never seen it. So this is literally the only, the second episode he's ever seen of the series. sweet
2: so, mm-hmm. so he, he has see the episodes we're talking about because it would be funny if the entire yes. podcast was just convincing Guy to watch The Prisoner <laughs> and you did all episodes before he agreed yes or no.
0: <laughs> it would save right. me some work.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yes, he's seen the first episode and this one. Mm -hmm. And then a big part of, if you really get into the whole prisoner thing, is because of how it was developed, which is that Patrick McGowan had this idea for a seven or eight episode tight miniseries that would make a specific point and get out. But the production company was like, no, we want a 24 episode per season thing that's going to go on forever, you know, just like your last series, Danger Man. (laughs) and. Mm -hmm. So what happened was as they were working on this, it was so hard to work with Magoo and he was such a jerk (laughs) and everything to work with on all this. They kind of gave up and said, fine, we'll do like 18 or 17 episodes. So so is that the trick? If you want to make like a really high quality,
2: like plot arc thing, just be a dick. And they're like, okay, fine, we'll do do 15. We'll, We'll call it quits.
1: But the, the interesting thing there is that they knew what they wanted to do for those seven or eight episodes, but now they had to come up with like another 10 over a weekend. Mm-hmm. Yep, and okay. so the result is this thing that is both very precise, but also very sloppy because they just shoved the stuff in there. So there is no canonical order for the episodes. There's no order that mm. makes sense.
2: That explains a lot, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> That, that explains so much because I've seen a couple where I'm like, where does this fit? Okay, good. Cause they didn't know where they <laughs> yeah. were going to put it. They were just sort of yeah. like rebooting <laughs> it every single episode. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I would actually say it kind of makes it art because it means that as a viewer, if you're really going to get into it, you have to make your own choices. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that actually has helped it survive as a show than it would have if it was just, oh, A to B to C, we're done. And there's no debate to have. You can't go online and argue for your order, et cetera. That said, I am the one person who has the perfect order for these. And that's what we're exploring okay. in this season. My order is different from everyone else because no one else has a clue. And part of the experience for Guy is for him to experience it in my order and see if it actually makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So far, it is. <laughs> of course, you've seen two.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so today's episode is case in point. It's called The General. And it was, I think, broadcast as the sixth episode. And other people have it in different orders. And I make it number two. So we will see what that's all about. One other little bit of context for this episode. In the typical chaotic situation for this show, on the Friday before they started filming the episode, Patrick McGowan fired the director. He did that a lot. Cool. And he then called up a director he wanted, a guy named Peter Graham Scott. And this guy was working for the BBC, and he was already had something to do the next week. So McGowan called up his boss, a guy named Sidney Newman, who's actually the guy who conceived of Doctor Who, which is the other thing we do on this podcast, at the BBC. And he talked Sidney Newman into letting Peter out of his other job and doing this show for the next couple of weeks. So Peter literally got a script over the weekend and on Monday had to start filming. And as you know, The Prisoner is not a simple show to direct. There's a lot of complexity there. Uh So that's kind of interesting.
2: Okay. So McGowan was a dick to work with. So I I knew he had (laughs) turned down being James Bond because he was Mm. an ardent Catholic and he Mm -hmm. refused to do a show that one didn't allow him to think first before shooting and two wouldn't kiss a woman on, on mm. camera mm. because he didn't want to have any moral infractions against the sanctity of marriage it said like which is a hard line by the way to be like I'm not even going to kiss a woman on camera like that's that's <laughs> that's a level that like mm. modern arch catholics I don't think would even care about that mm. so so I just sort of assumed oh like really upstanding moral dude like I don't really agree with the intensity of his prudishness, but I do appreciate that he is consistent with it and believes in it and actually lives his life based on that. But it sounds like he was also kind of a tyrant to work with on top of that.
1: He was, especially this was his show. He conceived of mm-hmm. it. It was his baby. He had a very specific thing he wanted to accomplish. And anybody who came up against that, he was just going to mow them over. And mm-hmm. guy and I have talked about this before. And, and you may know, I used to work for one of the most famous assholes of that type in the world. And, and, mm-hmm. On the one hand, I really don't like the fact that people who may have been me at one point uh, can have a hard time at their job and in life because someone's being a a jerk to them. On the other hand, to be honest, you don't get an iPhone and you don't get the prisoner if there isn't somebody who is absolutely unwilling to budge.
2: I I think that's probably true. I I think if you're going to lead by consensus, you're going to find things that much more approach, what is is the thing, approach the mean? I can't remember, Mm -hmm. but they're going to, they're going to, come towards the center bulge of the zeitgeist as opposed to stick out from it
1: what you were talking about with his catholicism and how that impacted what he wanted to do is something guy and i have also discussed i think it actually turned out to be great because it meant he was the one guy doing a different kind of spy character both Mm -hmm. in danger man and in the prisoner and in everything else he did because he had those rules his roles were different, and even though he was very uncomfortable around women and he wasn't going to kiss a woman on screen, there are many female characters in *The Prisoner*. But that means they get to have a different kind of relationship with him than mm-hmm. just being his girlfriend. Yeah, and I think that's they're, great.
2: They're not just yeah. 1960s dude pate. Yeah, um, <laughs> there are a lot of the time that is as I recall, they they tend to either be smart or manipulative.
0: But there tends to
2: be a little bit more of a brain interaction than just like. Like, like like james bond there yep. it's like we're gonna give him a horrible sex pun name <laughs> and their their role is to do all but softcore and then give him the mm-hmm. opportunity to say something clever and then leave and that's mm-hmm. like, that's it so the prisoner is definitely doing something different
1: yeah uh-huh.
0: attention ladies and gentlemen attention this is an announcement from the general's department will all students taking the three-part history course please return to their dwellings immediately The professor will be lecturing in approximately 30 minutes.
1: So we get the same introductory little kind of mini film for the first couple minutes, which we talked about in detail last week. Then we get something a little bit new, which is a conversation between number two and number six, where number two wants information and... Number six wants to know who number one is, and they go back and forth, and it ends in the very famous line, one of those very defining things, you know, I am not a number, I'm a free man. There's so many defining things about the prisoner, or so many famous things, and this intro is one of them, and they did one for each of the number twos. One of the weird little things is that in most of the cases, they didn't use the voice of the actor for number two, they had this one voice guy Mm -hmm. who just came Hmm. in and did it for all the different number twos. Oh, and amazingly, really? I did not realize that until I read about it. So it was a good guy. <laughs> huh. Okay. The, wait, the, so they didn't want to do
2: the same voice guy, do the same voice and just make it a standard intro. Rather, right. they wanted it to somewhat correspond with the actors, but they always forgot. Yeah. They're like, damn it. Oh, we were supposed to <laughs> to do that. Okay. Well, no, no. Our voice guy's great. Our voice guy's great.
1: One of the things you'll realize, and if you watch this as many times as I have, is everything about shooting a show like this was to cut down on costs at every moment in time. So they'll do these blue screen shots where it's in a studio when, you know, the previous shot was outside, you know, the, anything they can to cut down costs. Mm-hmm. So my thought is they're like, great, we have this important sequence that comes at the beginning of every episode, and we're going to have to bring every single actor up to speed on how to do it and do multiple takes with them, etc. Or we get a voice guy in here for two hours, mm-hmm. do it for everybody, and we're done. Mm-hmm. And this show, they're going to be like, let's just do that. <laughs> yeah. I I love
2: the intro, by the way, because it has the iconic late sixties car that he's driving for some Mm. reason, because he's got to have a a cool spy car Then it has the emphatic banging his hand on the Mm. the table so hard that the teacup breaks (laughs) and then it keeps cutting back to him. And like the, the, the McGowan default facial expression is one of like, I just told a really clever joke. That's his default state. (laughs) Like he does this, like, like I do that when I think I've said something particularly witty but that's his resting state is like, oh, yes, very well, that I shall. Like, it's just this kind of, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit smug. I don't yeah. know, it, but, but I find it funny.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We start the actual story, and number six is at the cafe in the village, having a nice cup of coffee, and there's this Big Brother-style poster behind him. It says, it can be done, trust me. We have no idea what that means. Then we get an announcement over the intercom. Students should return to their dwellings immediately. The professor will be lecturing in thirty minutes. We don't know what any of this is about, but apparently everyone except number six is a student because everyone immediately gets up and leaves. I I don't think I've ever I don't think you could go to a college campus and have people be that enthusiastic about going to class. <laughs> number six is not a student, so he wants another cup of coffee, and the waiter refuses to give it to him because they're closing. Because of course the course is about to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So number six pays up and leaves, and then he sees another poster, and it says RA, 100% entry, 100% pass, speed learn, three-year course in three minutes. So this is all, all brand new to us. And then there's this young guy, turns out to be number 12, we'll find out. He's been watching number six, and he approaches him, and he's guessing that number six doesn't believe in speed learn, and he suggests that he enrolls and mysteriously implies
0: that it could help him in escaping the village. I did notice that at some point between the last episode and this one, he's actually earned some credit units. So that was nice for him.
2: Yeah. So I, I could never quite, because I've, I've not seen all of the episodes. I guess I've seen about half of it. Do we ever quite figure out what the role of the villagers is? Are they all captured? Because I, I get the mm-hmm. impression that they're captured, but they've kind of made peace with it. And they're just trying to get al- going along to get along. That's the impression I get. Some of them are probably brainwashed, but... Very few of them have like eagerly decided to live in this place. That's just sort of the fluctuating number two and board members and things.
1: That is a really good question. And it's the kind of thing you sort of have to decide for yourself as you go through. Okay. There are clues in all different directions. It seems to me as we watch and we'll see in this episode, there are people who are just there doing their thing or even came voluntarily. And. There are people, as we'll see in future episodes, who are definitely basically moles, right? They're they're mm-hmm. there to trip you up and report you to number two if they can. Yeah. But there's a huge number of questions. Like, is it only one government that runs this place? Was this whole thing more or less constructed for number six? Or is it existed forever and it's just for all the spies or or questionable people who you kind of want to remove from society in case they might cause some problems? We don't know. When, and this,
2: By the way, this is one of the things that I have slight problem with in The Prisoner is, they put so much stock in why he resigned from the spy service. <laughs> and we never, at least in what I've seen so far, they never hint that it's a massive thing. Because the, the only thing I can think of is, well, he must have truly stumbled onto something crazy bad, and they need to know what he knows, because they like that could bring down the whole operation... Other than the fact that he's angry and he breaks a teacup, we I have never seen any indication that like well yeah like it turns out like they killed Margaret Thatcher and, and put her face <laughs> on a robot or like the, the Queen is a lizard person. We don't I, I've never heard any of that. But they're they're so emphatic about learning why he resigned.
1: I'm like just kill him. Like it's been <laughs> you made all this effort for this. Yep. Yep. Well, they seem to feel he's a special guy. I also think there's a, from what you, just from what you've said, you have to assume that they realize he might have stumbled across something. Maybe they don't even know that's that big. Right. I mean, that's why they would be so paranoid. Hmm. Again, it's another one of the huge questions. Okay. Anything else on all
2: that? I like the old waiter. That's about it though.
1: <laughs> yeah, I did. I swear. I recognize him. I need to to look up who that guy was. One thing, uh, and we'll talk about later, too, one of the people in the cafe was Ian Fleming, and he's going to show up again. Nice. Good for him. Wait, literally Ian Fleming of James Bond? Yep. Yep. Cool. Hey, so now we kind of get a sense of the whole village. Something is going wrong. There's some sudden commotion, right? Everybody just got up to go to class, and all of a sudden, everything's going to hell. A helicopter takes off. Sirens are going off. And then we see this shot of villagers either running behind or chasing someone on the beach. There's some ambiguity there we'll talk about. And number 12, that young guy, tells number six they're after the professor. You know professors, Mm absent-minded. So this guy in a few minutes is supposed to be giving a course, and for some reason he's running down the beach, (laughs) being, Mm -hmm. being chased by people. And they have this big war room that we've seen before, and they go on orange alert. And we saw them do this with the prisoner in the first episode, where he was running along the beach, and they go on alert and and call out all the resources they have to stop him. So in this case, number six gets to see that occurring for someone else. And number six goes to the beach to see what's going on, and he trips across a tape recorder buried in the sand, and it's playing a message, an urgent message from the professor. Before he can... See what this is about. Some muscle guys in a golf cart show up, and he buries the tape recorder so they can't find it, and they take him home. And meanwhile, the professor is captured by the villagers, or, well, I know, Guy, you had some thoughts about this.
0: Yeah, it was ambiguous to me because he collapses from exhaustion from all the running. And then the the people lift him up, not particularly harshly. They do turn around and head back to the village with him. But this scene coming right on the heels of that scene where number 12 suggests the professor might be a way for him to escape, my assumption when I watched this was that that's what was happening. The professor was making a break for it, and all these other people were going along following him to join in the liberation.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I think they wanted to take him back. But it might be that rather than acting as security, they were so enthusiastic about the class that they didn't Mm. want to let him escape because they wanted the class to happen <laughs> oh, sure. they
2: wanted to learn about turkey and prussia so yes. bad <laughs> exactly. they chased him down on a beach
1: <laughs> yeah yeah because and it kind of makes sense because in, all, in the entire rest of the show when they want to catch somebody they just send out their security dudes or the rover uh, mm-hmm. balloon so this is the only time we actually see villagers involved so it kind of makes sense that they're not really trying to catch him they're just trying to help him do his job <laughs> mm-hmm. So number six goes back to his apartment and the TV's on when he enters and the host is saying speed learn is nothing less than a revolution in education. And then the camera goes to the professor's wife who apologizes that he's been delayed. And so she's going to fill in for him. And she says the huge success of this course has put an added strain on him, but he suddenly is available. And the host says, we now take you to the professor in his study. Best of luck with the exams. I'm going to try again. I tried to have an audio clip for this, but it, one of the challenges in this episode is they put a bed of music under everything and they have the audio relatively low. So when I try to get a clip, you just hear all the background. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I got to say, the, the, I, yeah.
2: I watched this earlier. The audio is horrible. And yeah. it's like, who, they should have shot their audio guy because it, the yeah. audio guy gets all of the sound effects really loud, but gets like, any type of British person looks away, they just mumble British noises. Yeah. number like, <laughs> bang bang pop and like you can hear all
1: that stuff there's actually Uh, key dialogue you almost can't hear in this yeah Yeah.
2: and and then they also weirdly have like they really rely on this like trumpet like
1: sound effect (laughs) throughout the episode to like (laughs) this is great (laughs) yeah now i think uh, maybe they did fire the audio guy because i don't recall this problem in other episodes I, i think this is a critically bad one So now we have the professor and it's kind of weird because, you know, he was just trying to escape and he was just running down the beach. But now he seems totally fine. And he's there's also the the weird,
2: unnecessary introduction of his wife. Yeah, because it's it's the the, the, announcement like Mr. Mustache announcer guy is like. You know, 15 seconds, we'll learn all this stuff. Great. And here's his wife. And she goes like, oh, hello, I'm not so good at history. Oh, how horrible you have to put up with me. But my husband should join us in a bit. He's indisposed at the moment. <laughs> and then like eight seconds later, they're like, and the professor's ready. And I'm like, you yeah. couldn't have just waited eight seconds to do this broadcast? <laughs> this seems like a very unnecessary intercession of the wife there.
1: I think they were not quite sure how long it was going to take to slap him into shape. <laughs> okay, right. So now he's like all peppy and ready to pimp his stuff.
0: My apologies, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to say a brief word about speed
2: learn. It is quite simply the most important, most far-reaching, most beneficent development in mass education since the beginning of time. A marriage of science and mass communication, which results in the abolition of years of tedious and wasteful schooling. A three-year course indelibly impressed upon the mind in three minutes.
1: You know, he's making the claims. I mean, uh, this sounds like a late-night TV ad to me. <laughs> well, I don't know, because we're older than you, Mr. Heaton. But did you mm-hmm. go through that whole period of everybody doing speed reading or, you know, those sorts of things?
2: Uh, a little, but we, we did a thing called SPQR or S, I can't remember. There was something we learned in middle school. That was like meant meant to help you digest a book easier where you read the the table of contents and then you'd like flip through the book and you'd read like the introduction, you'd read the conclusion, which I find to be very helpful because a lot of the time books don't actually know what they're talking about until they get to the conclusion anyway. Mm -hmm. So we had that, but that was just kind of a good learning practice. Speed reading was existent when I was in college, but I feel like the the massive sort of uh, popularity of it had already been done because I... I never really felt compelled to go look into it that hard because I I feel like I I read fairly fast. I just didn't ever get into it.
1: I actually liked The Economist had a, I don't know if they still do this, but decades ago, they would do these reviews of self-help books where they mm-hmm. would give you a two-page version of the book and you got all the information you needed from that. Like all That's, self-help books yeah. are just that and 100 pages of fluff. <laughs> I,
2: I was saying, I, I interview a lot of authors and I, I can tell you that there are books that you're like, oh wow, this is building and I've <laughs> got to read the whole thing to figure out what this is about. But in particular, self-help books and business books are typically an article or a speech somebody gave that got Really good responses. And then Random House went, you should write a book about this. And it's just one chapter followed by a succession of anecdotes going, see, this confirms what I already thought. And like, it's (laughs) it's those ones you could read the, yeah, absolutely read the thing the guy writes that appears in the Daily Beast or the week or whatever, and then you're done.
0: Mm -hmm. Some of them, they'll actually put little executive summaries in the margins. So you don't have to read the book. You can just read the margins and you're fine.
1: The professor says he thought all this was impossible until he was introduced to the general. Okay. We have no idea who the general is. No no more explanation of that. Might come Mm -hmm. up a little later in the episode. And the professor finishes with saying speed learn has made me obsolete as the dodo. So he's been teaching for decades and he's no longer needed. But he's not too sad about it. (laughs) Which like, it, it did make me think about this though. Let, let's let say that this technology existed
2: or we had something like from the matrix where you can just plug a memory into your mind, a plug and play mm-hmm. kind of thing. It would very much change the nature of college because it would, <laughs> like, I guess it would just be one very long frat party. And then like at the end, you'd pretty much just be deciding which modules you wanted to download. And mm-hmm. and that would be the point of college is just figuring out what's downloaded to download into your brain. And then you'd do the whole thing in a day. And walk out If professors would either be guides or, or maybe they, I, I don't know, but it, we would really alter the nature of education. I, I found myself jealous <laughs> of the fact that this technology existed.
1: <laughs> Although I'm going to say, and we'll see it as we go along. I think this episode is really asking the question, would that actually be useful? And not only that, how could it be misused? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it, for sure. It could yeah. be misused
2: a hundred percent.
1: I think that the, the benefit to it, we'll get into it
2: in a moment, but it, it seems that what they're really doing is they're memorizing rote facts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they've learned any types of paradigms or they've learned any theoretical framework to plug it into right. or or anything like that. But but in terms of just dates they can memorize, which still would be helpful. I'd love to have that. Yeah, oh, true. Yeah.
1: We go back to the host and the host says, tonight's lecture is Europe since Napoleon, a hard six-month course. Sit back, relax, and watch the screen. We're going to cover it in 15 seconds flat. That sounds good. It's kind of like watching all of... Nova (laughs) the documentary series (laughs) and in 15 seconds or something. Then we get a little bit of clever editing on the TV. We see the professor and we're kind of closing in on his eyes and there's some kind of green light. And the next thing we
0: know, 15 seconds is over. Number six dropped his bloody Mary at the end of it. So it must've been impactful. And uh, I had a question. The episode doesn't seem to answer whether this TV was a special model or if it had Would it just work with any garden variety TV from Sears? Well, I have a
1: theory about that because I think they're making a not too subtle point, which is TV is inserting information into your brain. So I Mm. think from their point of view, they're saying any TV would work because TV is already doing this to you.
0: Let's mm-hmm. uh, this, this, is,
1: this is also back in a period where people are legitimately
2: worried about subconscious advertising. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty well been disproved mm. to this point that you can't, there's all sorts of things you can use television to, to manipulate people, but you can't just like put in, you know, one frame every 15 frames of somebody eating popcorn and they want to go eat popcorn. <laughs> but that was a serious yeah. thing people were worried about back in the sixties and seventies. This idea that it would be too fast for you to consciously register, but it would say, By buick and that you you would manipulate people to do that so i feel like they're they're preying on what would have been a very salient fear at that time Mm -hmm.
1: basically number six was just sat down in front of the tv with his bloody mary and all of a sudden he's not quite sure what happened and this guy said the real tragedy here is that he dropped the bloody mary (laughs) and all of a sudden number two shows up with a minion and he asks if number six been on the beach and number six is a little catty about this (laughs) Number two says, "Well, the professor lost his recorder with all his notes. Did you happen to see it?" And the henchman goes through the apartment with the metal detector. And here's, I think, maybe the most unbelievable statement in all of the prisoner episodes. Number two says, "You know, if you happen to have that recorder and gave it to me, we might let you leave the island." It's <laughs> <So>, like, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's really believable. Yeah,
0: yeah uh, <laughs> that's the path not taken. We'll never know for sure.
1: And then number two says, "Did you enjoy the lecture?" So number six is honestly confused. He says, what lecture? History is not my subject. And I I really think this is very clever. Number two starts quizzing number six about historical items from the course. And number six knows all the answers. And he's clearly surprised that he knows Mm -hmm. the answers. And then in a particularly long answer, both he and number two repeat the exact same words at the exact same time.
0: Yeah. And Mr. Heaton touched on this just a moment ago. It's the knowledge seems implanted. It's not integrated. It's just right there.
1: Yeah. So the fact that he would not even know he knew it until asked a very specific question that comes back to, well, how useful is this? <laughs> so number two leaves and usually number six is very on top of things, right? He's usually a step ahead of everybody else. And he clearly is like, I don't know what is going on here. And so he rushes to the phone, picks it up, the operator comes on.
0: Can I help you? When was the Treaty of Adrianople? September 1829. What happened in 1830? Greek independence was guaranteed. By whom? By Russia, France, and Britain.
1: Who was Frederick of
0: Austenburg? Bismarck's ally against the Danes under Prince Christian of Glucksburg. Frederick, like the Bundestag, had never adopted the Treaty of London in 1852. He, like Bismarck, was not.
1: So it's like, wow, there is something really weird going on here, right? Mm -hmm. We then get an announcement over the radio that the curfew is in 16 minutes. And uh, number six is just pacing back and forth. He doesn't know what's going on. He's antsy and he realizes he's got to do something. So he leaves, even though there's a curfew. And we see him on the beach and he's digging around for the tape recorder that he'd hid, but it's gone. But then he catches number 12 in the bushes. Number 12 says, you want to get out of this place, don't you? And he gives him the tape recorder and he says, here's your passport. Didn't number two offer you a deal? Don't you trust him? Number six says he doesn't trust anyone but himself. And number 12, and this gets back to what we're talking about. Number 12 says, what was the treaty of Andrianople? Number six says, September 1829. Number 12 says wrong. I asked you what, not when. Mm. And I I think this is like the number one thing we're dealing with here, right? Yeah. A date has been inserted into his head, Mm -hmm. but he can't say anything else. Right.
2: He's not, he's not contextualized. He's not thought about it. He just has the basic facts implanted in his mind in a modular way. But we also, it's also a good interaction between him and 12 because you, 12 strongly indicates that he doesn't believe anything going on either. Right. Like he, he says, I only trust myself. And 12 says, join the club.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: It indicates that like, you know, tr- tr- like the whole episode, I'm like, all right, twelve's either going to also be a ringer who's just trying to mm-hmm. screw him over. Or alternately, there are people in this framework that are legitimately trying to leave or are disheartened with how it's going.
1: Yeah. And we always mm-hmm. had that question. I have a theory uh, here, which is if you look closely. So first of all, number 12 is, is a young guy, younger, definitely, you know, probably a, a decade or two younger than number six. He is wearing the same blazer, except number six's blazer has a white outline. Mm -hmm. Number twelve has a blue outline. Mm. And I think as we'll see as we go along, also number six treats him as a colleague, takes him seriously, does not seem to be very suspicious of him the ways of others. And my feeling is number 12 is intended to represent a young version of number six. I think he sees himself in Mm. him. Could be. Although
2: in, in his case, number 12 has been kind of integrated into the body politique of the village, mm-hmm. right? Because he's he's a member of the board, as we'll see, and things like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. But he also seems to be trying to, you know, rebel mm-hmm. against it. So, right. interesting question. So, number 12 leaves, number six listens to what's on the tape, and it is the professor. Now, unlike previously where he was kind of the, you know, late night commercial salesman pushing his thing, here he is frantic and really wants to get this thing across.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, fellow villagers, students, this is the professor speaking. I have an urgent message for you. You are being
1: tricked.
2: Speed learn is an abomination. It is slavery. If you wish to be free,
0: there is only one way. Destroy the general.
1: So this is a very different side of the professor
0: (laughs) than we've been seeing. I'm not sure where in the episode I started... To get an idea of who the general turned out to be. But I, it, it may have been here because destroy the general is an interesting way of phrasing it's it. Anyway, me. enough said about that for now. I don't. That, want that's a good spoilers. point. That's
1: an interesting clue. <laughs> so now we switch to number two in his big round room. And he's talking to number one on the phone. And he assures them there's no problem. They're getting 100% cooperation from everyone. They're anticipating an exciting result. The professor, yeah, a little problem there. They just need a little adjustment. He'll be fine. (laughs) And then when he hangs up, number two's muttering to himself, this is probably the most important human experiment we've ever had to conduct, and he's treating it like a military exercise. So, you know, typical tension, I guess, between middle management and upper management. (laughs) Hmm. Then number 12 comes in and tells him the professor's responding to his treatment. But number 12 really goes anti-professor. He says...
2: I think we're going the wrong way about it with him. You mean about the professor? We indulge his idiocies far too much. He's a crank and should be treated as such. You think so? I know he's the cornerstone of Speedler, but I can't help feeling he's a troublemaker and he attracts troublemakers.
1: We're doing this all wrong. You know, you're indulging him. He's a troublemaker who attracts troublemakers. We should just shut this whole thing down. And number two isn't interested and just tells him to keep it
0: to himself. And he's very sharp about it, too. I mean, he's, he's taking some offense to the suggestion.
2: I think it's, it's smart on number 12's part, because number 12 is overplaying his hand. He's being the zealot. He's, he's mm. saying, like, we need to double down on this authoritarian tendency we have. We shouldn't coddle people. Believe in the mission. Just do it. And it's Which is going to piss off his superior, but at the same time, a late concern is that he might be a traitor.
1: Right, mm. right. And now we go to the war room, which this guy and I have discussed before is just a redressed version of the same room. So what was happening was the studios they were in at the same time they were filming 2001 was filming. And so 2001 had the rest of the studio space and they didn't have that many spaces. So a brilliant idea they had is they took this big round room and they just redressed it for almost every different set that they had. So every time you're in a big round room, it's the same room. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Is this the one that has the guys on the the rotating yeah, teeter totter? The
1: teeter totter. I love that. It's, it's cool. It's a
2: wonderful visual effect. But I'm always thinking, like, what are they? What are they doing that requires them to to be moving up and down like that? Like, there is a moment in a later episode where they appear to be spying on somebody, and I and it's like, okay, maybe they can actually see through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They can see through things because otherwise, it's like they it would be like being on a teeter totter <laughs> while wearing. Virtual reality goggles inside of uh, a planetarium, and it's like okay, you only need to do one of these three things. Oh, like the the, the the two other things actually militate against the first thing.
1: Yeah, my take was always that essentially it is X-ray; they can see whatever direction they're currently pointed in. But then mm-hmm. since they're always spinning around, it's not clear how useful that is. But yeah. it's cool.
0: <laughs> and there, in this episode, somewhere, one of the people says, "Run a scan." And it's a device in the room that actually just starts moving around and reorienting and scanning right, right. through the walls. Apparently, that big eye thing—I think—yeah, yeah. goes in this circle. Yeah.
1: So we're in the war room. Number two comes in, and it's a. There's a. I'm not sure structurally why they did this. The next two or three scenes are structured as the people in the war room are watching them through their video capabilities, but it doesn't really matter. They could have just taken this out and just showed us the scene. So I don't don't understand why they did this. But anyway, so number two comes in and they start watching different things around the village. And the first thing they're watching is the professor is typing away in his office. Then medical staff come in to take him away for a rest. And he doesn't want to go. He wants to finish his lecture. They take him away for a rest and a little bit of uh, some kind of procedure they're going to do to him. Then one of the medical staff Takes the pages that he's been typing and goes to a machine. It's kind of like a, like a fax machine situation. He feeds in the pages into this machine, and the result is the machine spits out an elongated piece of plastic that's like an old computer punch card. Mm-hmm. We're not sure what they're going to do with that, but that seems to be how they deal with this. Now the folks in the war room number two and company switch to watching the professor's wife outside the professor's home. There's a, a nice little fountain area and a whole bunch of people are there doing artistic kinds of things. And the wife seems to be kind of leading them in some sort of art therapy. And number six is doing some sketching. And there's a guy asleep. And at first we we'd think that he's sketching the guy asleep, but we'll find that's not the case. It turns out he's actually sketching the wife of the professor and she comes over to talk to him. And, and this is another one of the conversations I think that's just really key to this whole episode. She points to a man who's tearing pages out of a book and says, what do you think he's doing? And number six says he's tearing pages out of a book. And she says, no, construction arises out of the ashes of destruction. So by destroying this book, he is constructing new ideas, apparently. (laughs) She then points to a woman standing on her head and says, what's she doing? (laughs) And he says, she's standing on her head. And she says, no, she's developing a new perspective. And I think, again, we'll talk about it more as we go along, but I feel like Patrick McGowan here is really looking at a lot of the new educational ideas that were coming along at the time and saying, yeah, this is BS. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's the main take is that he's, he's going, yeah, this is very woo-woo nonsense kind of stuff. But I think that there's also a, like a hint of the sinister to it. And that the guy that's ripping the book up, it it could be a metaphor for... Not just get gaining new knowledge, but destroying old mm. knowledge in the process yeah. or, or yeah. destroying, you know, de- de- destroying what we previously agreed on or what you thought and replacing it with something that the authoritarian thinks. Right.
1: Good point. Yep. So number six now shows her what he's been drawing. He gives it to her and it's her as a general. So it's her with a general's outfit on. She is not pleased <laughs> with this, to say the least. And she tears the drawing in half. And one of those little insider things, if you look at this, you don't even have to look carefully once you know. When she's holding it in her hand, clearly this is not the first take and it's already been torn in half and they just taped it back together because <laughs> there's a big <laughs> thing through the center of it where they had to tape it back together. So it's just pretty funny.
2: <laughs> is she, when I saw the, the portrait of her, I, I initially thought that it was just her as a communist, that he was putting in like a, a Mao uniform. But you say, Ron, that it's, she's dressed as a general. So is the idea that he's insinuating that she is the general?
1: Well, yeah, in, in that I think the deal here is he keeps hearing about this general. He wants to know who this person is. And so he is just poking people. Mm-hmm. So he gives her the picture of her as a general to see how she's going to react. Mm, okay. And also, I think he's trying to figure out, again, in that whole question he always has to have is, is somebody screwing him over or are they real? And I think at the moment, he you know, he assumes she's part of the whole system. Right. Mm-hmm. So when she tears it in half, number six sort of turns things on her and says, creation out of destruction. It emulates mm-hmm. the guy tearing up the book. And now number six kind of sneaks away very quickly. So the war room cameras can't find him, which, of course, upsets them. He finds some way to enter the professor's house he was outside of. There are a whole bunch of busts all around this large room, and they're all covered in sheets. And the wife comes in and says, this is a private room. And he points out, wow, you guys have a pretty lavish setting here. And she says, well, we have certain privileges. We came here voluntarily. So obviously, this is like, you know, 100 times bigger than Six's apartment. (laughs) And number six starts pulling the sheets off the statues. He realizes that they have probably been made by her because she's an artist, and these are kind of just, you know, unfinished clay statues. And then it turns out clearly what he's looking for is he thinks one of the statues will be of the general, and he's trying to figure out who the general is. But the one he pulls off the sheet of that he thinks is going to be the general is a statue of him. So that's kind of funny. And number two barges in, and all of a sudden we see that the professor is sleeping in a room connected to this, and the door is open. This is all a little odd to me because I I have a lot of questions about this. So number six takes a big cane, a big wooden cane, goes to the bed where the professor is and bashes in his head. And it turns out that the professor is not the professor. It is a porcelain statue of him or a porcelain version of him. And so he just, you know, bashed in a porcelain head how the heck would he have known this? Why would he test this theory by potentially killing somebody? I have no idea what the deal here is.
2: Well, and also, what what is the exact purpose of this porcelain replica of the professor (laughs) for a a group of people that are completely in on it? Like, there's no one other than number six who's not supposed to be there anyway. This is my theory. I think that The Prisoner brilliantly presages all of the lost kind of shows that Mm -hmm. exist in Mm -hmm. that It's very good at being able to put in small bits of what the hell moments of what the hell, what is that about? And a sense that it means something, but it frequently doesn't mean anything. So like the the bust of number six, but which by the way, is a very good bust of him. Like I was looking at whoever did it, did a a magnificent job. Like I hope that McWood got to take that home with him and put it in his garage. (laughs) But it's like, it makes you think, okay, there's clearly some purpose here that he's being he's being groomed to, to become something where she's obsessed with him. Then I think the reality is that it just gives you that sensation of there's some pattern here that I've yet to identify, but they never mm-hmm. established the pattern. And I think the, the broken porcelain man's the same thing of just really driving home. that things are not what they seem, but there's something right. nefarious afoot, but there's no real purpose to it. Like I don't right. really like if number six weren't around, they could just be like, where, where's the doctor? Oh, he's sedated in another room or he's, <laughs> yeah. he's being tortured right, right now. Like, oh, okay, right. thanks. Yeah. I won't yep. ask about that again.
1: No, I agree. There's no reason. And I think they were going for kind of a allegorical thing, right? Like, this is a false person or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's Something okay, like that yeah. with smashing him. The other thing I actually think is a little off for the series is that... So he smashes in this porcelain head, he takes one of the pieces, and he hands it to the wife and says,
0: You should take greater care of him, mom. he He's gone to pieces. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a clever little line. I feel like it's not number six. Like, this is... line too clever by half and there's a there's a little bit of that in this episode it might just be the writer or something not quite having the character down because that's like an arnold schwarzenegger line stick around (laughs) in one of his films number six is smarter than that i think it fits his character because again
2: the the, the McGuid default expression is i just said something terribly droll that no one else (laughs) understands but i got it and i'm chuckling to myself so this this makes perfect sense to me that he would say something like that and walk out
1: okay so now number two tells number six that his offer to free him if he gives him the recorder is rescinded they no longer need it so now number six pulls out the recorder and throws it to him (laughs) so After number six leaves, number two tells the wife that number six made a bit of a mess out of her masterpiece. So it turns out she created the porcelain professor for whatever reason she did. And we go to the village and this is, again, just really weird. There's pandemonium. People are running around in masks, and It's like Mardi Gras. Why it seems that everybody and everybody
2: is The Nubian Principalities, 1853,
1: absolutely correct. So And they're doing this whole Mardi Gras celebration because of the courses. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the host for Speed Learn is is going around with his microphone asking people historical questions and showing that they all know the answer. <laughs> it's really bizarre to me. They they must be so bored in the village. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> e- e-
2: imagine being so bored that you decide to have a riot. Because the great learning companies just put stuff out on CD and you're like, Woo-hoo, let's all go to the town square and dress up in masks and talk about how great it is that we get to hear Rufus Spears talk about American history. Like that's how bored they are in
0: the village. <laughs> They're even carrying around placards. They've got, my favorite is the one that says, no homework with speed
2: you know this this just confirms my theory that a lot of people just love protesting and don't really need a reason to go do it because that's a protesting side and it's it's like positive protesting of like i'm in favor of this thing that everybody likes but it's just it's fun to go protest so they're doing that
1: (laughs) well i think number six probably like any of us really wants nothing to do with all this so he kind of slips through the crowd goes to his apartment And in his apartment, he turns on a light and all of a sudden there's this huge short out and all the electricity goes out in the apartment. And he instantly gets a call and they say, okay, there's a problem. Stay right where you are until electrics and administration arrive. And electrics guy shows up, determines that this was a deliberate short. Somebody sabotaged it. And number 12 comes in. Number 12 is from administration. And so electrics tells him about the sabotage and he tells him to go do what he needs to do. And it turns out number 12 set up this whole thing because he wanted a few seconds where they couldn't be bugged and he could talk to number six. Now this, again, normally in many of these episodes, we'd be like, was this all a big fake? And he's really being bugged, but it seems to be legitimate. And number 12 gives number six a special pen and some strange little round tokens with a penny farthing on them to help him get the professor's real message. The one he heard on the tape about destroying the, the general out as a broadcast, as an educational broadcast. So we have no idea how, what he's supposed to do with the pen, what these little tokens are for. Then the lights come back on, the electricity comes on, you know, number 12 goes into acting mode and talks about how he's going to punish number six for doing this sabotage. And <laughs> this bizarre thing. He gives a, number six the option of,
2: I'll fix it, number six, so that you become aware that deliberate destruction of official property is a most serious offense. I must recommend the full penalty. Which is? It could be imprisonment. It could be a fine. I'll take the fine. Yes, I thought you might.
1: And surprisingly enough, number six chooses the fine. Yeah. <laughs> This comes back a little bit in a weird way, which number 12 says, okay, I thought you would come to my office in the morning. Now, we never see that happen, but he must have gone there because there's certain things in the rest of the episode that make no sense if he didn't go and meet with number 12. So it's a little odd that we didn't get to see that scene. And now we go back to the big round room building and we have guys in big top hats. So this goes back to the intro we've seen in the last couple episodes you know the the people who subdue number six in london were wearing these big top hats we haven't seen them since and these guys not only they're wearing the top hats they're these black coats and again the very first person you see with this is ian fleming (laughs) so they have the top hats they have sunglasses and they're board members for the lecture approval session this is really funny to get into the session they put a little round token like what number 12 gave number six onto a box and a little toy hand reaches out and grabs it and goes back in. It's a little thing that you know ten year olds get this in their bedroom. Right
0: uh-huh. Oh yeah, it's just like one of those old battery operated banks, you know, where you lay the quarter down and something comes out. And that, but
2: it's also the most nonsensical security system. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I I love the scene because I think that the prisoner has the best costume rate of any science fiction series I've ever seen. Like, is it it alternates between very turtleneck outline blazer late 60s 70s fashion which is cool but then it'll do these weird throwbacks to like this kind of nostalgic halcyon 1880s england like big bandstand stuff Mm -hmm. so when old guys are doing formal things they wear top hats when they walk around town i love that but then they put the token in there and and then once they put the token in they tell the computer or the guy in the other line i'm here for the board or whatever but every one of them does it. So you could just stand behind any one of them and know the line. <laughs> right. I like the other thing too that I find odd about this is the board members don't know each other. I guess they've never met before because <laughs> they
1: don't seem to have a problem with Magoan coming in. Right, right. And he does exactly what he said. He just listens to what they say <laughs> and then puts in the token. But once number six has gotten in, he bypasses the boardroom. He can hear some meeting going on in there, but he's not interested. And he comes across some guards in front of another room, and he does this whole little clever thing where when one guy's back is turned, he knocks out the other one, takes him around the corner, and then puts on his glove, and when the other guy hears the commotion and turns around, he sees this glove... Around the corner, beckoning him around the corner, and he thinks uh-huh. sounds good to me. <laughs> and he walks over <laughs> and lets number six punch him out. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty funny. It's it's yeah. almost like a Warner Brothers cartoon. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I
2: like I watched that. Like you, you see that coming from a mile away. I was like, I was like, I actually do think it's kind of they they should have either played up the comedy war or alternately written it smarter. Because like I was like, if I'm ever a guard and I see a hand. Gesture from like, I'm like, of course you're gonna get cold cocked when you do that. Like a hundred percent that's what's gonna happen.
1: It turns out this room is the projection room, and number six enters, and there's some guy in a white coat who is looking <laughs> at you, oddly enough, a submarine periscope, which is partially funny because last week, well, many, many months in the future, but also last week, Guy and I watched Ice Station Zebra which was a movie that Patrick McGowan was in. And it's a submarine movie and there's all sorts of periscope stuff. So I don't know if he was (laughs) inspired to do this by the fact that he was in that movie. So he sneaks around and attacks the guy and the guy doesn't go down easy. In fact, he has this little rod that he's trying to insert into this machine to do the broadcast. And he takes the rod and stabs number six in the arm before number six can subdue him. Number six puts on his uniform and axes him, but he takes the pen the number 12 gave him and he takes a similar rod out of it. So it turns out the whole reason for the pen was to have this rod in it. And apparently this rod has the special message from the professor. He inserts that into the machinery to broadcast this. But unfortunately for him, then they do a video check on everyone in this whole system that's involved in the broadcast to see that everybody is ready to go. The host, the professor, the cameraman. When they show number six, he might have got away with it, but he's got all this blood running down his arm. And number two Mm. is not an idiot. (laughs) He sees all this blood and he says, wait, stop. And he makes them go back and and they zoom in and he sees that it's number six. Which, by the way, he has to know it's number six because McGowan has a permanent smug
2: expression (laughs) on that he just got away with it. Like, exactly. if he just didn't have that expression, and he cleaned his <laughs> hand a little bit, but even if he hadn't got stabbed, if he was just smugly staring
1: into the periscope, of course they're going to know it's number six. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. So he gets knocked out, and apparently the originally intended projection goes out. And then we switch to the boardroom, and... Number six is in here tied to a chair or something, and number 12 and number two are there and some guards, and number 12 is sort of pretending to interrogate him. He's saying, there must be an organization. You must be part of it. Tell us who's in this organization. Even though the other actors are right next to number six and they're walking all around him as he's interrogated, he is lit completely differently from the rest of them. He is this entire blue look on him, and he's sweating and everything so it's it's like there's an interrogation light on him that's not impacting anyone else it's pretty impressive that they were able to do that because i almost thought they had composited him in or something but no he's sitting there and number two reads from what number six was trying to broadcast from the professor he says
2: this reactionary drivel that you were on the point of sending out to our conscientious students The freedom to learn, the liberty to make mistakes, old-fashioned slogans. You are an odd fellow, number six, full of surprises.
1: Speed learn will give you the exact correct answer. So why would you need the liberty to make mistakes or the freedom to learn? Hmm. In the middle of all this, the wife calls number two. And since he's happy about the broadcast and what the professor did, she wants to see her husband he says, of course, as soon as he finishes the first phase of the next installment. So clearly he's kind of blackmailing her by not giving her access to her husband. And number six sort of looks up at this point. And I think this is the moment when he knows that the wife is innocent. Up to now, he thought maybe she was the general. He wasn't sure if she was in on it. But I think hearing this conversation, he decides that she's okay. And then number two turns to number six. And he says, you're not going to answer our questions, but you know what? The general can answer anything. And so he calls the general's office and he says, I have just a slight problem for you and I want to come over right away.
0: This is another moment where you might at least get an inkling of who the general ends up being. At least for me, it struck a chord.
1: Well, I'm curious (laughs) what what did, because he's referring to him directly as a person.
0: He says something to the effect of uh, if the general has all the relevant facts, he can give you the correct answer for anything. And I think maybe that was what made me suspicious.
1: Mm-hmm. And they go to the general's office. You know, it says on the door, the general. The professor is typing away, which brings up this question, of course, is the professor the general? Number two tells us.
2: Plato, Aristotle, Voltaire, Rousseau, and the rest. They're all here, all available to the general. There is no question. No question from advanced mathematics to molecular structure, from philosophy to cross The general
1: cannot answer. Again, we're like, okay, but who's the general professor takes what he's been typing, feeds it into that fax machine thingy, gets another punch card strip. Now, number two is very dramatic. Allow me to introduce the general and we get this fake out shot of the professor. It's like, oh, that's the general, but no, then we pull out and there's some curtains and the curtains pull aside. And it turns out there's a huge wall sized computer and that is the general. And number two kind of gives a lecture to number six.
2: That mass of circuits, my dear fellow, is as revolutionary as nuclear fission. No more wastage in schools, no more tedious learning by rote.
0: A brilliantly devised course, delivered by a leading teacher, subliminally learned, checked, and corrected by an infallible authority.
2: And what have we got? A row of cabbages.
1: I love this little line by number six, even though I I didn't understand it at first. He says, a row of cabbages. And I honestly thought he meant the computer was a row of cabbages, but eventually I realized, (laughs) no, what he means is that the students are a row of cabbages. And number two agrees. He says, indeed, knowledgeable cabbages. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this brings up this thing that I haven't deep dived in this. You might've done some episodes on this. My understanding is that our current school model, which is the same model we had 100 and 200 years ago, was basically intended to socialize kids so that they could go into a factory in an industrial environment and behave appropriately.
2: Yep. That's a significant part of the educational model we have. So what we had in the United States for colonial history and maybe up until the civil war was the red schoolhouse model where you'd have a teacher for all ages you didn't have very many kids either. You had maybe like up to 20. You as the headmaster would be teaching anyone from like first grade through middle school at the same time. And so you just sort of do general lessons, but you might deputize somebody. If you had an older kid, you'd, you'd have them teach the ABCs to the younger kid and so on and so forth. A guy named Horace Mann, who was the Secretary of Education for Massachusetts, went to Prussia, which was considered to have the most advanced education in the world, in many ways did at that time. The two things that they had that we had not done yet where they had universal education, which was not obligatory in the United States. It varied from state to state. Some states didn't have it. And they had looked to the Industrial Revolution as an exemplar of what to do in education. They felt that education had been left behind in a a kind of feudal, religious, agrarian society, but it was time to industrialize it, which meant treating children like industrial products. So um, they're going to be on a conveyor belt, in effect, where they're all coming out at the same time they're actually going to show up with a whistle. They're going to leave with a whistle. And then another big part of it that was a part of the Prussian model was one of the things that they really thought about when they lost to Napoleon was why did we lose? And the conclusion they came up with was our generals were insubordinate. Our generals Mm. just didn't properly understand the chain of command. And Mm. we we need to really have a society that understands hierarchy and authority and appreciates deference. And so Mm. that was a major part of it was being able to inculcate children with civic values and all those things. And I, I think authoritarianism was a big part of that. But one of the reasons that it was so popular a champion in the United States, that public education became so popular, was that the Rockefellers of the world liked the idea that you were going to be taught to defer to authority figures because mm. they were kind of flummoxed by the amount of people that were like, you know what, screw you. I'll just open up my own shop. I don't want to work for you anyway. And, and they were like, no, we don't need this. We need more mm. people that want to be a part of a machine and understand that society's better. And I just happen to be at the, ha- the top of that society. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot to that.
0: It's consistent with how speed learn seems to work you're getting all these facts, but you're not really getting insight. You're just getting responses that will come out when they're needed.
1: Hmm. I think kind of a flaw in the argument in this episode, or at least something they don't grapple with, is clearly McGowan is railing against these new ideas, and he's also railing against the idea of people being turned into cabbages. On the other hand, the existing educational system is doing that. So... Is he mm. defending the status quo? I mean, you know, they that part is kind of not dealt with, right? Mm.
2: Well, I, actually, actually, I should note really quick: the British don't have a Prussian model; they kind of mm. did their own mm. thing. It, it's why when you when you hear British people say a public schoolboy, it mm. means a it means mm. a private school kid, <laughs> and the reason is you have to get into like the British mentality of education was up until I don't know, like eighteen ninety or something like that. Education was limited just to rich kids, mm-hmm. so. Hmm. Private schooling meant you were taught in your own castle. Public schooling meant you went to a boarding school with other rich kids, hence why they, they call it public. And, but we, we say public hmm. meaning state. Hmm. They say public meaning that kind of thing. So maybe they had a different thing, but, hmm. but fair point.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Then, you know, another really critical thing, and I think it matters more today than it did then, is number two says, for now, we have to make do teaching people history, but soon we're going to make our own knowledge to
0: broadcast.
1: So, at this whole sequence at the end, in classic Captain Kirk style, what Number Six does is he enters a question into the computer, and when he does, the computer goes crazy. It suddenly, starts shorting out, and you know, smoke, et cetera. It's so bad that the professor who's entering information grabs onto a handle and gets electrocuted because of apparently random electricity is running around this computer. And number 12 goes, apparently cares, really does care about the professor. He runs up and grabs him. Unfortunately, when someone's being electrocuted, the thing not to do is run up and grab them. (laughs) Because then you get stuck, right? Yeah, exactly. So he gets electrocuted. So number 12 is now dead, too. Number two is like, what did you do? What was the
2: question? It's insoluble.
0: A man or machine. What was it? W-H-Y. Question mark. Why? Why?
1: Which I always just find it amusing. I mean, our computers are fragile enough, but thankfully these things don't actually, in fact, cause fires and cause them to blow up. Yeah, this is (laughs) is
2: such a 1960s, 70s take. As you're right, this absolutely happens in Star Trek. I've seen it other places. It's, you know, hey, robot, the next statement I say will be false. The last statement I said was true. And the robot will go, no, illogical, illogical. And then it will just catch fire and explode. And I'm like, clearly no one who ever wrote any of these scripts had ever seen or worked with a computer in any capacity because they would know circa windows 3.1 that when you do that it just goes does not compute or illegal error or something like that it to me is very strange that there's this whole sense that like if you ever damage a computer where it's not completely coherent it just explodes and that's how they're made (laughs) yeah
1: so we end with a somewhat unusual and poignant thing which is we see outside the professor's house where the fountain is and everything and and the wife is there clearly worried with no dialogue, Number six walks up to her and clearly tells her that her husband has died, but she's upset, and he sits down to talk with her, and the episode is over so it's it's a it's a kind of a nice quiet little ending for a prisoner episode mm-hmm. so one of the things the guy usually does, but since you are our guest, we will give you the privilege this time is Guy determines, uh, was this episode worth watching for a modern audience? So what would you say to that?
2: Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, there are a couple of episodes (laughs) later on, (laughs) like the penultimate episode is so surreal and weird and avant-garde that I'm like, you can probably skip that one. This one though, I think is fun. I, I think that this is a good introductory episode of The Prisoner. You're getting a very good idea for the flavor of the show. There's some things to consider. It has like a touch of Black Mirror to it. Yeah, I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give, give it a, a
1: passing grade. Great. And since I know you're going, where can people find you on the internet, Mister Eden?
2: I host my own podcast called Alienating the Audience, where I do deep dives on science fiction, and people can go check that out. We do a lot of Star Trek, Star Wars novels television shows at the time of recording we just did one on babylon five and the week before that we did children of men and before that logan's run so we cover a, a wide gambit of things and encourage you to go check out alienating the audience
1: okay thank you sir let's talk about the characters a bit as we'll see as we go along somewhat unusually we have some honorable characters yeah seems like the wife is i mean we don't She's clearly going along with things, but she mostly seems
0: to care about her husband. Yeah, I I don't think she ever gets any name aside from the professor's Mm -hmm. wife. Does she? I mean, no. Unfortunately, neither neither
1: her nor him have numbers even. So, which Mm. kind of I think shows that they have a different status than everyone else, right? They were sort of brought in to do this thing. They're not really part of the village, right? We have number twelve. as We talked about you know maybe kind of a prototype. Number six, he seems very serious. In the
0: end, he gives his life trying to save the professor. I mean, what was he all about? <laughs> he maybe he just didn't think at all. Maybe he just wanted to save the professor. I don't know. <laughs> well, but even that is unusual in the village, right? Here's someone mm-hmm. who acted just to help somebody. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, it did uh, possibly blow his cover to some extent, too, because earlier he had been uh, badmouthing the professor mm-hmm. to build his street cred as a. Uh, tough guy working for the village so well who knows it's uh it's the end of the line for number 12 but he he tried to do the right thing just didn't turn out well for him
1: so as someone you know new to the series has only seen the first and second episode now or for, or what i call the second episode mm-hmm. if i didn't tell you that there was an order question, would this feel out of place to you how do you think it fits
0: no i don't think it'd feel really out of place He has credit units now, which he didn't have in the last episode we watched, but that could just be, you know, whatever time has elapsed between the first and second episodes. Then we got a new number two in the intro and throughout the episode, we didn't get to figure out or find out how he came to power, but that's a minor thing. You know, that's something that doesn't have to be shown.
1: Yeah. And as actually, you will see as we go along, they never tell you the number two just shows up.
0: Mm, yep. Okay. Yep. All right. So this is the dubious connections part of the show. <laughs> First, in the intro, it includes a new view of number two's office. And there's a path leading to the central control panel in the middle of the dome. And to me, it's evocative of a much larger dome in the movie Brazil. It's actually a torture dome. Don't fight it, son. Confess quickly. If you hold out too long, you could jeopardize your credit rating. But the scene is similar enough to me that I wonder if maybe this show was an influence on that design. It's a bit of a stretch maybe, but could be.
1: I I think that's totally plausible. Brazil was made by someone who was in Britain during this whole period, so I'm sure he was Mm. exposed to the prisoner and wouldn't surprise me at all.
0: No, that's true. It It was a British movie. This is this is one of my favorite things in this episode, and it's it's a tiny, stupid thing, probably, but I...
1: We're all about the tiny, stupid things on this yeah. show.
0: <laughs> I've always gotten a, a kick out of Sher Khan in Disney's The Jungle Book. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of lines, but he just has a great voice. And one of the things he says is, what a pity. But you were singing to someone. Who is it, Khan? Oh... Oh, 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 no, Oh, no. I was just singing uh, to myself. Indeed? Yes, yes. You see, I have trouble with my sinuses. What a pity. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> and interestingly, in this episode, number six says that line with pretty much the same intonation. So what's your subject too? no, no. military history, uh, generals, and uh, that kind of thing. I'm afraid you may be wasting your time. What a pity. And it turns out, and I don't think there's any overt connection here, but The Jungle Book was released in October of 67. This episode was broadcast in November of 67, so <laughs> it might be just one of those things like, you, I'm sure you've heard the, it's steam engines when it's steam engine time. You know, the mm-hmm. theory that sometimes things are just ready to pop into existence or you know, some zeitgeist type thing maybe. <laughs> but anyway, I, th- I thought that was an interesting similarity. And then uh, I had thought that the question number six typed was visible on what he on the sheet that he typed. Just at the um, end when he was doing the question for the computer, yeah. Right, right. And I thought the question was legible, although I didn't get up close enough to the TV to really verify it, but I, I could see that there were three or four, 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 I think, because I assumed the first one was the number one, just to say this is question number one. But you went and looked at it, and you said it says A, B, C, D, rather than the actual question. Near as I could tell, Yeah. I think you're probably right because I didn't I didn't get up close to look at it and I think maybe I was just deceived by expectations because uh, uh, cause when he typed it and I he I think he only used three or four keystrokes I I guessed the question then because there aren't too many questions you can write and have any keystrokes right.
1: Yeah, I think both they didn't want the paper to reveal it, but also this you know people wouldn't be able to see it, so they just typed right. whatever and
0: put it on there. Yeah, yeah. Final thing I wanted to mention is that Why Question is an example of what the website TV Tropes calls Logic Bomb. The Firesign Theater is a classic one. If you like the Firesign Theater, it's on, I think we're all bozos on this bus is the Came name of the, the album. album. And then the movie War Games has a pretty famous one with, uh, with the tic-tac-toe game. And both of those are listed on that page, but uh, there's one of my favorites that isn't, and that is when Austin Powers does his sexy dance and shorts out all the fembots with it. You can't, you can't resist, resist us, Mr. Powers. You can't resist us, Mr. Can't resist Powers. us Mr. Powers. Oh contra baby. I think you can't resist me. You're the one who makes me come on <laughs> yeah. So it goes to show you that Mojo is an insoluble question. <laughs> And that's all I have uh, to say about that. Hey well, and with that I think we're done. <laughs> all right. <laughs>
1: And this brought up a, you know, we talked uh, earlier about deep fakes and such. And this brought up that question for me. We see it all the more now with, you know, Twitter and memes and people get out their version of the truth. And if it's an attractive version of the truth that happens to confirm your priors, it goes right into your cerebral cortex and, you know, you buy into it. And now, uh, there was this recent thing in Afghanistan where, a person was shown hanging from a helicopter and it was very disturbing because it was presented as this person has been hung and is being mm-hmm. flown around Afghanistan. And it turned out if you saw it from a different angle, the the guy had a a full um I just had the word harness, the, harness on. Yes. Yeah. The guy had a full harness on and he was actually being flown around to fix a flagpole. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. But these days, even though we have video, even though we have audio, now that we have this ability to change what you're looking at, what is going to be reality. And I know, again, I think you did a whole episode on deep fakes and Mm -hmm. what's going to happen here.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I did. So so there's two things. I think you're you're spot on about confirmation bias exists in media where um, if something affirms my worldview or allows me to uh, take a pot shot at the people I hate, I'm not going to be very scrupulous of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it if it forces me to rethink my paradigms or rethink my beliefs, then I'm going to look for flaws in that particular piece of evidence um, to try and maintain whatever I currently have. Like another example here recently is um, uh, there there were a bunch of stories that were spreading this letter from a doctor in Oklahoma um, that was mm-hmm. talking about how all these idiots were were taking you know heartworm medication for horses because they're mm-hmm. such idiots and they won't get vaccinated like you should. And, and then everybody, all these outlets put up, you know, all these morons in eastern Oklahoma are taking horse dewormer medication because they refuse to get vaccinated because they're morons. And then somebody actually finally called the hospital the guy worked at and the hospital went, right, he works here part time. We've not actually been in contact with him for about three months now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not having this issue. We're also not over like it was it was made up. He had he had written a political manifesto and couched it in a kind of fantasy of medical things that could happen. And it was all completely bought hook, mm. line, and sinker by a media apparatus that wanted to point a finger at the stupid hillbillies and be mad at them. Yeah. And then the other part of your, your question, Ron, I think, uh, is, uh, yeah, the deepfakes thing is, is definitely gonna be a, uh, a big deal I had done on the political orphanage. I did a bonus episode where, um, I used Descript, uh, a, an editing program that has fantastic AI overdub capacity to where it now has my voice and intonation and uh, and just sort of the canter of how I speak completely down to where you can listen to it. And unless I tell you that it's it's a deep fake or you're really, really trained to hear audio warbles, like you're an audio engineer, you're probably not gonna know. And uh, that's that's gonna alter things. But at the same time, I, I hope that it'll just make us more scrutinous. Like when I was in college, the big, I don't know if this is, if this is now uh, defeated or not, but when I was in college, professors hated Wikipedia. And would get really mad at you if you relied on Wikipedia for things because you couldn't trust it. It yeah. hasn't been verified. Hmm. And the, the, my response to that was always like, should to be clear on this, if a book is published, the author and publisher never have a motive, have <laughs> never taken liberties, <laughs> have <laughs> have never um, not done due diligence. Just anything with a printing press automatically meets as true Like I think you should always be scrutinous of sources, including ones that are, you know, the New York Times or Random House or whatever. Hmm. Not even taking a shot at them. It's just, you should, you should never right. assume any information you're getting is a hundred percent by virtue of the source. You should, you should mm-hmm. be scrutinous in all things. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. see you-